If you turn to our Old Testament reading and also our text for the morning sermon to Leviticus chapter 23, and then if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 20, which is our New Testament reading. Uh, This uh, Old Testament reading is a lengthy reading. I'm going to be reading the entire chapter. So you're really going to have to think and concentrate as as I read through this particular text. Um, Hear the word of the Lord from Leviticus 23. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. And the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. But you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain parched or fresh until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. You shall present a grain offering a new grain, of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old, without blemish, and one bull from the herd, and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. 
And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest. A memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord, and you shall not do any work on that very day. For it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It's a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening shall you keep your Sabbath. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day. Besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take the uh, on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate as a feast of the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feast of the Lord.
This is the word of the Lord from the Old Testament. Now our New Testament reading, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 20. Hear the word of God. Now if Christ is proclaimed and raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those of us who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word every jot and tittle of it, even this lengthy passage from the Old Testament that gives details regarding feasts and festivals long fulfilled in Christ and abrogated and not practiced any longer by your church. And yet this is your word. And this word is for us for our instruction and for our understanding. And yes, this is your word. And your word is about Christ. Father, I pray that you would grant strength to your servant, that you would grant the unction and the anointing of your Holy Spirit to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ from this passage in the Old Covenant with clarity and with power. And Father, let that anointing and unction of the Spirit extended to the ears of those who are here gathered to hear your word. Let their hearts be fertile soil. Father, give us ready minds to give thought to the things that we're hearing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've already had one to come up to me between Sunday school and church and say, I'm excited about the text, thinking I was going to be preaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I said, well, my text is the Leviticus passage. And he said, oh, I'm more excited still. We'll see if that's the case. You could understand why I would pick 1 Corinthians 15 for Easter, could you not? It is about the resurrection, though it's not directly about the resurrection of Jesus. It's indirectly about the resurrection of Jesus. The issue before the Corinthians was a denial of the general resurrection at the end of this age. And what Paul is saying is, if there's no general resurrection at the end of this age, then there's not a first resurrection. That is, a first fruits of those raised from the dead. The Lord Jesus himself is not raised from the dead. And if the Lord Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then we are to be pitied above all men. A very fitting text for Easter Sunday. But I think Leviticus 23 is as well. 
uh, when I was reading it. I, 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 I warned you, it's a long text. I warned you, you need to think and pay careful attention. Yet it's still easy, and I'm not saying it happened to any of you, but it's easy when you're hearing a text like that read for your mind to begin to wander, for one thing to run into another. And part of the reason is, is we're so far removed from the... We've never experienced it in our own lives. It's fulfilled in Christ, therefore it is abrogated New Covenant worship has replaced it. There is a correlation from everything you see in the Old Covenant worship to what you see in New Covenant worship, but worship is much more simplified in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're thankful for that when we begin to read detail after detail after detail after detail that we find in Old Testament worship. And yet I'm convinced that Christ is here. What I want to try to help you do is to put in some anchor points to understand what these feasts are. Then we're going to move to the theology of the feast, and in particular, how Christ has fulfilled them, and more particular, we'll focus most of our attention upon those feasts in the spring of the year. We will come to those at the end, but give less treatment to the ones in the fall of the year. But you need to understand these feasts are arranged according to an agricultural calendar. It follows the agriculture. It follows the harvest. Every year there's one harvest. But some of that harvest takes place in the spring of the year, and some of that harvest takes place in the fall of the year. Farmers know this. Different things come in at different times. And according to when these harvests are coming in, that's when these feasts were prescribed by God on Mount Sinai and given to Moses for the people of God. And let's begin with the Feast of First Fruits in order to understand, get, kind of put pegs in so you can understand these feasts. The, first of, uh, the Feast of First Fruits, which is associated with Passover, and with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I'm going to come back and explain how that is shortly. That was at the early grain harvest, usually the, the, the barley harvest. And what they would do on the Feast of First Fruits is they would take a, a sheaf of barley, they would take it to the temple after the temple was built, before that the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, and it presented to the priest and it would be waved before the Lord as a wave offering. There were also blood sacrifices that were, that were, that were made on that day as well. But they were giving thanks to God for the early grain harvest, for the barley harvest. From the Feast of First Fruits, you count seven, seven Sabbaths or seven weeks you come to the 50th day, and when you hear 50, the Greek name Pentecost comes in, and we understand what Pentecost is. It's typically called the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament. This was to celebrate the latter grain harvest, typically the wheat harvest. They would harvest their wheat each home. In each home, they would bake two loaves of bread, bring them, present them to the priest. They would be presented as a wave offering before the Lord. And that would be a seven-day feast in celebration, the Feast of Weeks. So seven Sabbaths, 50 days after first fruits, you have the Feast of Weeks. Then there are no more feasts until you get to the fall of the year when the produce comes in. 
when the vegetables and the fruit, when these are harvested. And on the first day then of the seventh month, the spring feast began the Jewish calendar, the first month. On the seventh month, on the first day, is the Feast of Trumpets. And trumpets were blown on that particular day. On the tenth day of the seventh of the, of the month was the Day of Atonement. This was a holy convocation as well. The Day of the Atonement is central. It is central to Old Covenant worship. You can demonstrate that by if you look at the book of Leviticus and you look to the very center in the Hebrew language of the book of Leviticus, the pinnacle point is what? It's chapter 16, which is about the Day of Atonement. And if you look at the Pentateuch, the first five books, the center point of the first five books is the book of Leviticus. So if Day of Atonement is the pinnacle of Leviticus, and Leviticus is the pinnacle of the five books of Moses, you see how important the Day of Atonement is. And you recall, that was the one day out of the year when the high priest only would go behind the veil into the sanctuary of God, into the Holy of Holies, with blood in order to intercede on behalf of the people. That happened one day every year on the Day of Atonement. And then on the 15th day, that's the 10th day of the 7th month, on the 15th day, there's another week-long festival, and this is when they gave thanks for the produce, for the vegetables, for the fruit as it came in. And they would offer food offerings to the Lord. And for seven days, they lived in tabernacles or booths or tents in order to commemorate that the people of God in the wilderness wanderings lived in tabernacles. They lived in booths. They lived in tents where they could go from place to place to place. And God's provision for them in the wilderness and beyond the provision that he made for them in the wilderness also is the anticipation of the time when they would enter into the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey, when they would plant their own crops and when they would then harvest their own crops and give thanks to God according to these feasts. Here's something else that's quite interesting about this. God gave them these feasts on Mount Sinai. They did not celebrate them for 40 years. They couldn't. How could they celebrate these feasts according to an agricultural calendar when they didn't have any gardens, when they didn't have any produce? They didn't have anything to bring to the Lord. No, the Lord fed them manna for 40 years. He gave them these instructions 40 years before they could, in obedience, follow these instructions. When they entered into the land, when they conquered the land, they moved into cities they didn't build. They moved into houses they didn't build. They harvested gardens that they didn't plant, but then they planted for the next year. And they had this to bring before the Lord and to give thanks to him after they came into the land of promise. And so they began to celebrate these feasts at that time. Now, I hope that helps you to pinpoint these feasts in terms of the agrarian calendar and the harvest. Remember, this is important. There's only one harvest 
it's several months apart from each other. But every year there is one harvest. And that's the very point that Paul's making in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Jesus is the first fruits of those who are raised from the dead. Therefore, the guarantee that there will be the latter harvest, our resurrection at the end of this age. Now I want to come back and give some theological import to the feast. And then I want to move rather quickly to show how Jesus very specifically fulfilled these feasts. First of all, Passover is what's mentioned. And let me say this. Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread are closely associated with each other. The Feast of First Fruits actually takes place in the midst of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The way you would calculate the Feast of, of First Fruits is the first day of the week following the Sabbath, following Passover. So if Passover took place on Thursday, Friday night in through Saturday at, at twilight, that's the the Sabbath, then Sunday, the next day, would be the first, the Feast of First Fruits. That's the way it was calculated. But let's come back to Passover. What's commemorated in Passover? It's God's mighty saving act of his people. Through the tenth plague, the tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn, you remember they killed a lamb. They applied the blood to the door of the dwellings while in Egypt. And that night in Passover, what happened? The destroyer passed over Egypt. And every house that didn't have the blood applied, the firstborn in the house died. There's weeping and wailing throughout Egypt. But every house where the blood was applied, there was salvation Within, It's called the Passover of God. The Passover of God. Now, one of the things we need to recognize as we think about the Passover, we need to stop and think, why unleavened bread? Have you ever wondered that? Why do they have unleavened bread? The other feasts, they don't have unleavened bread. The Feast of Weeks, they don't use unleavened bread. They use real bread with yeast in it, with leaven. There are two reasons why unleavened bread. The first reason is because God's deliverance was going to be so rapid. It was going to be so sudden, the bread wouldn't even have had time to rise. He delivered them from bondage in Egypt in order to go to the mountain of God to worship him and ultimately to go into the land promised to Father Abraham. The way... Bread wouldn't have time to rise. So don't even put any leaven in it. That's how fast God is going to deliver his people from bondage in Egypt. And then secondly, what later became associated with it is leaven was associated with sin or wickedness or evil. And a little leaven does what? It leavens the whole loaf. And so purge your houses of leaven. And so it was purged from their houses. They had no leaven in their houses for the entirety of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, with this accent in Passover over things happening rapidly, suddenly, that quickly God would declare, would deliver his people from bondage in Egypt. There is one detail, and this is interesting, and now we're going to come to Jesus after this, but there's one detail that they took their time with. One detail, one thing. 
I see looks on faces like, what are you talking about? You don't find it in Leviticus. You don't find it in Deuteronomy. You, you find it in Exodus. Turn back to Exodus chapter 20. Chapter, chapter 12. Sorry about that. Exodus chapter 12. <clears throat> Look at how Exodus chapter 12 begins. This is when God is giving Moses instruction about preparing for Passover night, when Passover would actually take place. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. That is, this is when your new year will start. This is the first month from now on for you. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. The lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old, You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Everything else they were preparing for haste and a quick and sudden departure from Egypt, except for the selection of the lamb. On the tenth day, select your lamb. On the fourteenth day, slay the lamb and roast it and eat it. Apply its blood to the door. Why the delay? Why the four days? Well, the text tells us the lamb, or it can be a goat, a male lamb or a lamb goat must be without blemish. You see, it was selected on the 10th day of the month in order to be observed for four days to ensure that when it was slaughtered and killed, it was perfect without blemish. Now I want to come to Jesus as we come back to Leviticus chapter 23. I want you to think about Jesus' final week. But you to think about what took place in Jesus' final week. And I can't say for certain that I know every day these significant events occurred. It's disputed. There's one thing we know for sure. He was raised from the dead on Sunday. <laughs> that we know the Bible tells us. The other is scholars and other people studying the Bible, comparing notes, looking at the various Gospels and trying to determine from the things that you see when things took place. But tradition has settled on certain days. I'm not saying I'm 100% certain it's correct. There are those that would dispute it. But let's go with tradition. What day of the week? And I'm going to give you an opportunity to answer in a sermon. You never get to do that in the Presbyterian Church. But Roran, whatever his name was, you know, he did some crazy things when he was preaching from Sunday school. So, so, uh, so, so maybe we can do something like this. What day traditionally did Jesus make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem? What day of the week? I said you can speak. Huh? No, no, the triumphal entry, the triumphal entry. 
Palm Sunday, that's right. Now, we don't do a lot in OPC churches about these things, but a lot of churches, they've got, they've got kids running up and down the aisles on Palm Sunday, which was last Sunday, waving palm branches before the Lord in celebration. It was on a Sunday, you see. Tradition tells us. Okay, what does tradition tell us was the night when Jesus had Passover and administered the Lord's Supper then to his disciples? What night of the week? Thursday, that's right. What day, according to tradition, was Jesus crucified? Friday, okay? And what day was he raised from the dead, according to the Bible? Sunday, okay? So Sunday, Thursday, Friday, and Sunday, according to tradition, and the last according to the Bible. Okay, let's suppose that's correct. If Thursday was Passover, then that would be the 14th day of the month, according to the law. If Thursday's the 14th, what's Wednesday? 13th, what's Tuesday? 12th, what's Monday? The 11th, what's Sunday? The 10th. Remember what God told Moses to tell the people on the 10th day of this month, which is now the first month on the tenth day, select your lamb. It's called the day of presentation. This is a custom that continued later as they would select their lambs on the tenth day of the first month in order to observe them for four days to make sure they were without spot or blemish when they would be sacrificed or when they would be killed or slaughtered at tabernacle or temple then on the 14th day, which is Passover. Now, remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus. What he said to his own disciples, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want you to realize something here. Let's put it all together. If Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as the Lamb of God, he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the day of presentation. He was presenting himself as what Paul would later call us our Paschal Lamb. And he was observed over those next days to ensure that he was without spot or blemish, where he healed the sick, where he taught the people where he confronted the religious leaders sometimes by saying woe to you scribes pharisees and hypocrites you whitewashed sepulchers jesus was presenting himself as a lamb a lamb without spot or blemish on the very day the lambs were being presented do you understand how jesus fulfills the day of presentation Okay, then let's fast forward then. What day did Jesus celebrate Passover? Thursday? So we said the 14th day. What did Jesus do with Passover? He transformed it. We know that. But he administered it. Have any of you ever been to a Seder service? A walk through the Seder service. Some of you are nodding your heads that you have. I've done it with my grandchildren and their home. I've done it in churches. I taught a course on the Hillel of Egypt at Grand Bible College last summer. We concluded it with a walk through the Seder service. If you have it, it's an extraordinarily wonderful learning experience because Jesus is all over the place, the Seder service. They just can't see it. 
if you want to know what the liturgy is today, just go and Google Union Haggadah, and you can download the entire liturgy, everything that's about it. And what I love to do when I do a walkthrough is to show how Jesus fulfilled Passover. There are all kinds of things the Jews do. They don't understand why they do them. For instance, there are three pieces of matzot that are beside the leader, whoever it is, usually the father or grandfather, who administers the Seder in a home. There are three pieces of matzot. It's right there in the Union Haggadah. Early in the meal, what does he do? He takes out the middle matzot. He doesn't know why. He breaks it. He puts half of it back. The kids hide their eyes, and then he goes and he hides the what will later be called the afikoman, which is the Greek. It's the dessert of the meal. And then he puts it aside. And then later on, the children go and find it, and he redeems it from them with a prize. It's a lot of fun when the kids do this. When I did it with my grandkids, though, my oldest grandson peaked. And the youngest grandson, he was youngest then, he really wanted to find it. He really wanted to find it. And his older brother went straight to it. He got a reprimand from his father for peeking. I can remember where that happened. But it's, it's fun when you come to that place for the children. But there's meaning in these things. Another thing about the Passover, they drink four glasses of wine. Now, it takes several hours, and so it's okay. <laughs> and there's food that's being eaten as well. Those four glasses of wine represent four promises in the book of Exodus. After the meal, that is, after they, in biblical times, ate the Passover lamb with all of the other ingredients that are there at the meal. When they came to the conclusion of the meal, of course, the story of the Exodus has already been told by the leader, they come to the third cup. The third cup is called the cup of redemption. It's based on the promise, I will redeem you from bondage in Egypt. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible that that's the third cup, that was the third cup that Jesus came, took, and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. All of you drink it and gave it to his disciples. It's called the cup of redemption. You see how he transforms the Passover? And then the afikoman, remember I told you about that piece of bread that's hidden away? And when Jesus was with his disciples, there weren't any children to find it. And so I'm sure they didn't go through that kind of a, uh, a game in order to find it and redeem it. But was it the afikoman that it was broken from the middle loaf? Are there three persons in the Godhead? Seems like there are. Broken from the middle loaf. Was it the afikoman that Jesus took and said, this is my body which is broken for you? Here's something that's very interesting historically. Originally, the afikoman was not bread. It was a piece of the lamb. But historically, they can trace back into the first century when it was changed in the custom from lamb to bread. Most think that happened with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. I don't think so. <laughs> I think in God's providence, it had become bread when Jesus administered Passover to his disciples. And I believe the Afikoman 
was the bread he took and said, this is my body which is broken for you. How Jesus himself fulfills and thus transforms the feast. And from Passover and all these other feasts, we now have a simple meal of bread and wine where we come and we celebrate and we feast. And you should see the Lord's Supper as a holy convocation and as a feast before Almighty God, a celebration of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Because the ascended Lord Jesus Christ is here, we come to this table. This is far simpler than these seven-day feasts that took place, three of them during the year out of the Mosaic legislation, two others that come later, one at the time of Esther and then the other at the time of the Maccabees. So there are two other by the time Jesus comes, but these that come out of Sinai, you see how Jesus fulfills Passover. You see how Jesus fulfills the day of presentation as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we come to first fruits. Now remember, how do you calculate when first fruits is held? It's the first Sunday after the Sabbath, after Passover. If Jesus administered Passover on Thursday, the Sabbath following is Saturday. The day of first fruits was what day? It's always that day. Sunday. What happened on Sunday? What happened when the women who hurriedly tried to prepare Jesus' body for burial and did not finish the task before Sabbath and so the stone had to be rolled, rolled in front of the tomb in order to keep the land from being desecrated by the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? The religious leaders, they were so desperate that their Sabbath not be desecrated. After turning over the Lord Jesus Christ and betraying him, they went to Pilate and said, we need to get them down off these crosses. And he broke the legs of the thieves. Why? So they would speed their deaths. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. They pierced him with a sword and out came water and blood, all in fulfillment of prophecy. Oh, they wanted their holy Sabbath and their wretched, reprobate state. The women had to hurry. They didn't finish. But the women, ever the dutiful ones, they were up before dawn on the first day of the week. They made their way to that tomb, hoping to find somebody that would move the stone so they could go in and finish his body for burial. But when they got there, the stone had already been moved by God, and the tomb was empty, and Jesus was raised from the dead on the day of first fruits. And so Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, says Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. His resurrection is the guarantee of our own at the end of this age. It's the same harvest. Jesus has been raised from the dead. I don't have time to give the detail to the other feasts, but I do want to quickly work through these other feasts 
Remember from first fruits, you count what? Seven Sabbaths. You come to the 50th day, you have the Feast of Weeks. This was a time when they commemorated the giving of the law. What happened on that Feast of Weeks? What happened on that Pentecost? The Holy Spirit was poured out by the ascended Lord Jesus upon his church. Extraordinary event that occurs. The Holy Spirit comes and baptizes that infant church of those that were in the upper room. There were cloven tongues of fire. There was the sound of a mighty rushing wind on that day. Oh, to have been there. And then for them to spill out into the streets of Jerusalem, speaking in languages they didn't know. But guess what? The people who gathered for the feast understood them because the people who gathered from the feast were Jews from all over the known world. Imagine that you were from Kedar and you spoke a, a, a Kedarite dialect of Arabic and you go in order to worship God. In Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks and you hear someone who has a Galilean accent that doesn't know Arabic who's speaking the mighty deeds of God in your native language. It's the reversal of Babel, you see. It is demonstrating that when Jesus told his disciples, go make disciples of the nations, go win the world, baptizing them and teaching them. He also said, wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. You will see power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's what happened. And we're the fruit of it. We believe because we heard the witness of those who saw him raised from the dead through the scriptures. And we bow the now. Bow the knee to King Jesus now, though we're Gentiles who speak an entirely different language. This was always God's intent. It was to save the world. And so how does Jesus fulfill the Feast of Weeks? By pouring out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And then we have the missionary age in which we live, where Satan has been bound in terms of deceiving the nations and the gospel goes forth to the four ends of the earth. What an extraordinary, extraordinary thing that we see. And then, of course, there are no more feasts until you get to the end. That is, to the fall of the year, to the Sabbath month, the Feast of Trumpets. I wonder what that could be about. Seems to me like there's going to be a trumpet that's going to sound at the end of this age, at the end of this harvest. It's going to announce the final resurrection, the first fruits, Christ, and now the resurrection of the dead at the end of this age. Does that mean that Jesus is going to come back in October? No. There have been those who have conjectured. There have been those, you know, do you remember Harold camping some years ago and he had it all pinpointed down? It was going to be in October. You wonder why October? Now you know why October. And of course we knew he was wrong before he found out that he was wrong. He, had to, he tried to adjust it to March of the next year and then he gave up after that. Jesus said the God-man in his human nature, he didn't know the day or the hour. I don't know how anybody thinks that they're going to be able to figure that out. But it doesn't matter in this regard. Theologically, Jesus is going to fulfill the Feast of Trumpets when he comes again in the clouds of glory. 
He's going to fulfill that. It won't be being celebrated unless you're dispensational and you think that there's going to be a restoration of the kingdom, the rebuilding of the temple and all of that, which we don't hold to that theology in the Presbyterian Church. Christ has already fulfilled it all. But we see that fulfillment of trumpets when Christ comes in the clouds of glory. And then, of course, the Day of Atonement. We could spend weeks, and I'm not going to do it, although I have seven hours, no, six and a half hours left. You had to be in Sunday school to understand that one. (laughs) Now, we're not going to do it, but how did Jesus fulfill the Day of Atonement like none other? Remember what happened when Jesus was crucified. What happened at the temple when Jesus died? What happened? That veil was torn from top to bottom. That's what happened. That separated the holy place from the most holy place. Before, only the high priest could go in once a year and with blood and with a cord tied around him in case he did something wrong, was struck dead by God. They could get him out by pulling him out by the cord. But now, it's torn top to bottom. And what does the Bible say to you? Come boldly. Because Jesus has gone not into that one, which is simply made by the hands of men. It's a replica of the Holy of Holies in heaven. And Christ has gone in, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood as priest and sacrifice into the very presence of God on our behalf. And now he bids us come boldly. And we run into his presence. Oh, the glory of the new covenant fulfilled in Christ Jesus over against that glory that's ever fading. Of the glory, yes, it was glory in its own time of the old covenant. And then you have the Feast of Booths. How do we see the Feast of Booths? Let me ask you a question. When we're in heaven, do you think we'll remember this history? When we're in heaven... Some people say, no, 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 because there will be no weeping. And if we could remember, if we knew the people that we loved and they're in hell, that, that uh, it, it w- we would be weeping. No, you won't. You will know. But you will know the righteousness of God. And you will know the full depth of sin. And you will rejoice in his justice and in his just judgments, even as you rejoice as grace in heaven in ways you can't see now. Yes, we will know. Yes, we will remember. Will we set up booths in heaven? I doubt it, but we will remember this history. Another way I realize that is because the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity will bear the scars. But he was raised from the dead. How did they know it was him? Thomas. Come put your finger in the scar. Come put your hand in my side. What did Thomas do? He fell before him and he said, My Lord and my God. The two on the road to Emmaus, I can't say for sure, but they didn't know who he was until when? Until he broke bread. He took the bread, he broke it, he gave it to them. When he extended his arms, did the scar were the scars revealed? I can't say for sure. I think so. 
He still bears the scars. Why? It's in this it's in this history ordained by God that redemption is accomplished. That's how important this history is. It's in this history that includes your history, your own personal history ordained by God where you have been captured by God the Holy Spirit. Your heart has been subdued to repentance and faith and to joy in Christ Jesus in this history. And we will remember this in heaven. Just as, I think, the Jews, when they came into the land, when they celebrated the Feast of Booths, they remembered their time of wilderness wandering here on earth. But they remembered it for seven days. The rest of the year, what did they do? They ate from a land that was full of milk and honey and the provision of God as God had brought them into that typological paradise of the land that he promised to his father Abraham. Only a type and shadow pale in comparison to what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But yes, this history will be remembered and celebrated for here your redemption was purchased and here in this history the benefactor and his benefits were applied to you by the Holy Spirit in your own history and it has eternal consequences from now on in the new heavens and the new earth Christ fulfilled the feast in some ways in an extraordinary literal way extraordinary little way. There's so many more things that could be said, but I'm not going to take seven hours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how we see in the old covenant in types and shadows what those types and shadows anticipate and how with great clarity we can see their fulfillment in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You've taken away our sin. Father, we pray that as we read this, you would stir our hearts to joy and joyful obedience and zeal to honor your name. for the rest of our days in this life and in the age to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.